there's another little caveat in in some areas in that there's some evidence that different subspecies of white-tailed deer have variant susceptibility and that in fact there might be some genetic resistance to uh, severe disease associated with with infection in some subspecies in particular the texana subspecies Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we're going to be talking with Dr. Mark Reuter of the University of Georgia in the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study about all things hemorrhagic disease, or EHD, blue tongue, whatever you want to call it. It's getting that time of year when, when you might start to see signs of hemorrhagic disease, uh, you might start finding the occasional dead deer, you know, along a creek, a river, or a pond bank. And so we thought this would be a great time to bring Mark on to discuss the disease, you know, what causes it, and the impacts it can have on local deer populations, and, you know, the ways that we can potentially manage to, to kind of mitigate the disease. So be sure to stick around for that conversation. Hey, but before we get started, this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast is brought to you by our friends at Land Trust. Uh, Land Trust is a recreational access network that connects hunters with landowners to provide access to private land all over the country. Uh, you can kind of think of it as the Airbnb of the hunting world. Uh, and for every deer hunting trip booked through Land Trust, they're going to make a $10 donation to the National Deer Association. So uh, not only will you get a great experience, but you're also giving back to, to conservation in the process. And you can explore Land Trust's half a million acres of ranch and farmland to find your next deer hunting adventure at LandTrust.com. Hey, if you haven't checked it out already, uh, we are kind of coming to the end of our Improve My Deer Hunting Sweepstakes. Uh, we'll be wrapping that up in less than a week. And uh, a pretty cool deal. We're, we'll be drawing three winners for this one. And the first prize is going to be a one-day in-person consultation with the NDA staff member of your choice. So that's cool. You can pick one of us to come out, uh, tour your property with you, and discuss ways to improve it for wildlife habitat and hunting. Uh, second prize is very similar, but it'll be a virtual consultation. So instead of coming out in person, uh, we'll jump on a Zoom call with you. Uh, look at, you know, maps and, and your look at your property with you and, um, you know, make those similar recommendations. And then third prize is a, um, a Deer Steward certification course package. So you're going to get to take our Deer Steward One course online and as well as uh, be able to attend a future Deer Steward Two in-person course. So uh, a great prize package there. And, uh, Right now, the, the odds are pretty good. We, we don't have uh, uh, too many people signed up for that just yet. So you got great odds or better odds than usual of maybe uh, potentially winning one of those prizes. So if any of that interests you, you can head over to our website at DeerAssociation.com. Click on the Improve My Deer Hunting Sweepstakes banner on the homepage there and uh, get signed up. And speaking of deer steward courses, uh, pretty cool deal here. This this past week, some of our NDA staff, um, Kip Adams, Matt Ross, Ben Westfall, uh, they joined Dr. Craig Harper of the University of Tennessee to conduct a custom NDA deer steward training course for more than 90 members of the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Uh, even, even a few of their commissioners sat in on that. So that was a, a pretty cool deal. Uh, they got to cover everything from deer biology uh, to the latest deer research, forest management techniques, and and food plots, uh, just the whole gamut of of kind of land management and, and deer management. And uh, that's actually the sixth deer steward custom deer steward course we've held for state wildlife agencies. Uh, we've done them for Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, Ohio, and Tennessee. Uh, but this has been the largest agency class yet. So uh, I just thought that was pretty cool, worth mentioning. And of course, if you're interested in learning more about deer and land management, uh, you can take some of those same deer steer courses 
Uh, and you can check those out on our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. And look under that Conserve menu tab, and you'll see a link to Deer Steward Courses. And with that, guys, let's jump on the phone with Dr. Mark Reuter to talk all about hemorrhagic disease in deer. Mark, before we dive into EHD, uh, maybe can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what you do there at the University of Georgia? Sure. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm an, I'm an associate professor here at the University of Georgia uh, at the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. And we are a unit that was founded um, in 1957 by state wildlife management agencies here in the Southeast to address wildlife health issues. So we've, we've been here for quite a long time. We're a multidisciplinary group and we work hand in hand with um, state and federal agencies on many different disease topics in wildlife, including, of course, one of my favorites, and that's hemorrhagic disease. And how long have, has Squidus been looking at, at EHD? How long have you been studying that? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting story. It's part of our origin story, in fact. So in the, in the late 50s, um, you know, this was at a time when deer restoration efforts were common throughout the region. Um, but there was consistently these episodes of high mortality in white-tailed deer um, that often followed waterways. And at the time, it was the, the concern was that these events were going to potentially complicate the the restoration and recovery efforts of deer. And so, you know, it, it was a different time then in, in terms of our knowledge of of wildlife diseases, of our ability to address or understand wildlife diseases, and, and that sort of gap was identified by the southeastern states, and they they pooled their resources as a region to establish what first was the Southeastern Cooperative Deer Disease Study in 1957, um, which quickly emerged into the Wildlife Disease Study because, you know, they quickly learned that our lack of knowledge was not only centered on deer, but on many species also. And so it was those episodic sort of periods of mortality uh, in the Southeast here that, that led to our founding and that disease, in fact, was, was hemorrhagic disease. And so we really have been studying hemorrhagic disease since we were founded in the, in the late 50s and haven't, haven't really stopped since. Do we know how far back it actually goes as far as, obviously, we didn't have a name for it, but mm -hmm. is there any, how, how far back does the documentation go on, on these, I guess, these outbreaks where these, you know, they would find these, these dead deer? Yeah. So. So if you kind of look strictly at, you know, from a scientific perspective of when the first confirmation of epizootic hemorrhagic disease occurred in white-tailed deer, it, it was in, it was in the, the 1950s. Blue tongue is a, is a similar virus, which I think we'll talk about here as well, but um, that one was confirmed uh, the next decade in, in the 60s. However, despite only being confirmed in the 50s and 60s, you know, to, to be identified as a, as a a virus that's causing this disease. If you look back in writings and history, um, there are sort of mentions of periodic high mortality in white-tailed deer following waterways that is presumed to likely be hemorrhagic disease. And so those records get into like the late 1800s. So probably this is a disease that deer in North America have been living with for quite some time. Okay. And this will, was it primarily a, a southern issue i guess early on is that where it was being seen here in the in the deep south um yes and no it gets a little it gets a little tricky there so it, it's it's been a it's been a disease issue in the south for quite some time and it and it occurs more regularly in in these sort of more southern latitudes but historically there has been more northern northern outbreak uh, for instance what the the in the fifties when I just referred to that outbreak, which led to the discovery of the, the actual virus causing the disease, epizootic hemorrhagic disease virus, that outbreak actually occurred in New Jersey. And okay. so even in the fifties, there were some outbreaks at these more northern latitudes. And right about at that same time, um, there were outbreaks in Michigan and Alberta and parts of the sort of the upper Midwest. But those were relatively infrequent events back then and and 
there's been a, a pretty significant shift in recent years to where those are becoming a little bit more common than they ever were at these northern latitudes. But we still have um, circulating uh, virus here in parts of the southeast on an annual basis in many places. Okay. Well, before we get too far down the line on this, I guess, can you can you just hit on the, the basics as far as, you know, what is EHD? What, what exactly is this the disease? What what causes it? You know, just kind of the, the, the basic high overview. Of course. So I typically refer to it as hemorrhagic disease um, because there's actually a couple of different viruses that are very closely related that cause the same clinical disease. So epizootic hemorrhagic disease virus, and there's, there's multiple sort of types of that, and then blue tongue virus, again, multiple types of that. But these, are, these viruses are, are in sort of the same virus family, so they're very closely related, but they are distinct. And both of those diseases, or both of those viruses, they infect the white-tailed deer, will, will cause the same sort of clinical outcome. That these deer will develop more or less a hemorrhagic fever. Um, so it's, it's an a, acute, meaning rapid, febrile disease, so fever-causing disease. And these viruses will replicate pretty well in deer and cause variable clinical signs. So Worst case scenario, you know, a deer will develop a rapid, you know, a fever pretty rapidly within, say, four or five days and feel very ill. They'll have lethargy or sort of in weakness. They might have difficulty breathing, uh, might be salivating. Um, and in sort of the end stages of death, they might um, sort of be a little bit unaware of their surroundings and, and, and able to be uh, approached quite closely. Sometimes, in these deer that are severely affected, they might sort of be be bedded down and just kind of holding on for dear life more or less as their lungs are filling with fluid or their heart sac is filling with fluid um, and they're just trying to breathe. And uh, if, if they get kind of get stirred up from a, from a spot where they're bedded down, um, there's many scenarios um, where, where people have come across a deer, they get up and they run about, you know, 10 or 15 yards and they fall over dead um, because of the that fluid that accumulates and just prevents air, you know, from from uh, that that sort of transfer of oxygen that we that we get when we breathe and we don't even think about it. But those so so there's there's a lot of different outcomes of these viruses in deer. But to, to back up a little bit of about sort of I think about diseases in systems, um, and so this is a vector borne disease. And so by vector, I'm referring to Culicoides biting midges. These are really small biting insects anywhere from one to two or three millimeters long. If you've ever been on the coast of the southeastern United States at the wrong time of the day, you have no doubt been feasted upon by Helicoides biting midges. Now, probably a different species that might not be um, important in the transmission of these viruses to deer, but Helicoides biting midges, they're important vectors of pathogens for deer, but they're also important sort of insect pests around the world. They will disrupt tourism and, and, and other activities, especially for some beachgoers. But so these, these little insects have to become infected with this virus by feeding on a, on a white-tailed deer. So the, the story begins as, as one of these adult midges lands on a, on a white-tailed deer and takes a blood meal from the deer. So they just, they bite, they suck up the blood. And these insects are really just doing this to complete their life cycle. All they want is the blood and protein in that blood so that they can develop their egg. And so, you know, she flies off and develops her eggs and lays them. Um, and in that time, that virus, that insect ingested from that deer's blood, infects that insect's tissues, that culicoides tissues, goes throughout the body and eventually gets to that midge's salivary gland. Um, and at that point, that midge could then transmit that virus to another deer. So there's a lot at play there. You know, the, the deer aren't necessarily, you know, directly transmissible to one another. They have to have this insect that connects the dots here. That process in a, in a, in a midge could take anywhere from days to potentially weeks, depending on some environmental conditions. Okay. And, and these, these midges, is that what we would typically, or, or some of us would, would refer to as no seams here in the south, but absolutely no seams, punkies, five O's. There's a bunch of 
a bunch of little names for them. But yes, no CMs is probably the most frequent one that I hear. Okay. But there, there are different species of these. I mean, the, the ones that are biting on us aren't necessarily the same ones transmitting this disease to deer. Or- Correct. There's, you know, in North America, there's probably more than 140, 150 different species of culicoides. And so these culicoides midges, there's, they, they, they're a pretty diverse, you know, group. Um, you know, there's some that breed, um, you know, they, as in lay their eggs in, you know, mud along a stream or a pond. Some might prefer leaf litter. Some will breed in tree cavities. Some in the Southwest breed in like rotting cacti. Um, some breed in dung. So there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variety in in how they sort of live their lives and there's also a lot of variety in what they feed on so some some culicoides midge species are are more important they they feed on birds m- almost primarily some prefer smaller mammals versus larger mammals etc so so there's a lot of different culicoides species but it's probably a small portion of those that are actually important to hemorrhagic disease infection on the landscape okay and but that's that's the only way this is spread to a deer there's no deer to deer nose to nose contact or anything like that it's just strictly through yeah so so, so in the past you know the, the short answer to that is no that the, the the important route of transmission here is through through culicoides biting midges however in in experimental settings you know which which you know we've we've done here we've demonstrated transmission through other ways and it it's it's typically highly artificial situations where you have deer, you know, confined in, during an experiment in, in very tight quarters and, and you can get some, some exposure that way, whether it's, you know, through, you know, grooming or close contact or, you know, eating feces, there's all kinds of weird little ways that can happen. Um, but in nature, there's no evidence that those are significant at all. Okay. I gotcha. So, does EHD or hemorrhagic disease, uh, does it pose any threat to humans? Can this be spread to humans through these midges or, or from a deer? Or No, no. no. There's, no there's no evidence that this is a, um, a, a risk to people, which is good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We don't need another one of those. <laughs> no, no, we have enough. <laughs> yes. Um, so how, I guess uh, you talked about, you know, how it, how it can impact a deer once it's contracted this. I, I guess my question is how how often is it fatal? How how often does it get to that severe stage? Mm-hmm. Or uh, or is it is it one hundred percent fatal? Or do deer recover from this? What's yeah what's prognosis it's, once they yep, track? That's a that's a good question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use that classic phrase of it depends. Um, sorry, but I have to here. So if we start, you know, I, I think probably one of the easier ways to to look at this is is um you know regionally. So so we know, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different outcomes here and it could, it could run from subclinical infection, meaning they're infected, you know, they, they replicate the virus in their blood, but there's no outward signs of disease. So they just, they're fine, you know, no, no, no worse for wear. And another extreme, they could literally fall over dead four to five days after they were infected. Others might um, survive some of this acute phase this this more rapid kind of hemorrhagic fever they survive it only to succumb later to what's referred to commonly as chronic hemorrhagic disease and it's just a, a chronic form and so so you'll you'll often see um when, when reading about hemorrhagic disease these sort of forms of the disease you know acute or per acute you know th- this is just meaning very rapid so these are those deer that are going to get kind of overwhelmed by the virus and succumb within you know a week or or so and uh, these are the ones that might develop these intense hemorrhagic lesions or fluid accumulating in in body spaces or in tissues high fevers and and death the chronic form is is more you know these might be animals that succumb you know during the winter almost as as overwinter mortality for instance so these 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 are animals that survive that initial acute or per-acute infection um, and, and the virus is, is causing damage in internal organs that doesn't necessarily heal, but rather scars. So things like, 
lesions in the, the tongue or the oral cavity or inside the rumen, which is the, the, one of the stomach chambers. And once those injuries occur from the virus replication, they scar down and then those organs just don't function appropriately. Um, and a lot of times these, these animals just uh, succumb to uh, starvation or malnutrition or sometimes secondary bacterial infections that kind of jump in there opportunistically, you know, in, in sort of infected ulcers in the oral cavity um, or, or infected uh, hoof walls um, as, as their, their hooves kind of slough at, at times, which I can, I can mention uh, a little bit more about later. But in terms of, of which of those outcomes is possible, in large part depends on that animal's um, level of immunity, which in many ways is dictated by where, where they are geographically. And so if we think about northern latitudes, they were in Wisconsin or Michigan or New York, Pennsylvania. If you were to just go out on the landscape and collect blood from a variety of animals, from, from, from a, a handful of, of animals, 100, 100 deer, and look for antibodies against episodic hemorrhagic disease virus or blue tongue virus, chances are you're going to find none, right? So, so these, this is a population of animals that really doesn't regularly see these viruses and so they don't have their immune system isn't sort of primed and ready right to, to, to know what it is and react quickly and so these animals are highly susceptible chances are if these animals um, see see one of these viruses during this summer's transmission season the outcome is probably going to be pretty negative for those deer um, and, and the high the, the fatality rate in those animals is probably going to be pretty high because they're they're you know, from an immune system perspective, they're very naive. They're very susceptible. So if you kind of take the other extreme and head, head way down south, whether, you know, in South Florida, South Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, you're going to find in those hundred deer that you, you search for antibodies in, you're going to find that a lot of those animals actually have antibodies already, the EHD. Um, and so these are areas where these these animals are frequently, much more frequently exposed, right? On an annual basis, maybe every couple of years. And so there's that that sort of level of, of pre-existing immunity down here. Um, there's another little caveat in in some areas, and that there's some evidence that different subspecies of white-tailed deer have variant susceptibility, and that in fact there might be some genetic resistance to uh, severe disease associated with, with infection in some subspecies, in particular, the Texana subspecies, which, which is sort of a southern species, subspecies and, and kind of gets up into to parts of the Great Plains. But in, the, in this species, or subspecies, sorry, um, there's been some work done here previously that, that examined this question of genetic resistance in white-tailed deer. And, and the, the basic experiment was was that fawns were taken from from Texas, so this was the Texana subspecies, and then there was another group of fawns taken from Pennsylvania. This is the Borealis subspecies. And all else, um, all else the same. These these two cohorts of animals were were challenged, and the fawns from Pennsylvania all developed severe disease, and the the fawns from Texas could kind of care less. And uh, this this was an evidence that that basically. Genetically, um, there is some resistance aside from sort of that life experience of, of having previous exposures to, to the virus. And so when you kind of put these two things together in these, in these places in, in sort of the deep south where you have some genetic resistance potentially among deer, as well as frequent to like annual even exposures potentially to these viruses, most of these deer populations have a, a high percentage of the animals in that population that are resistant to to infection because they live with it almost almost yearly okay <clears throat> and how long i guess how long do those antibodies persist yeah that's another good question we don't entirely know that the answer to that um like many things with hemorrhagic disease but but there is some some good evidence from a barrier island population in in georgia couple decades ago where we knew when, when an outbreak occurred and then, and then those animals were followed, you know, cohorts of those animals were followed out in time. And, 
those those older age class animals in that population, you know, seven to eight years old, had antibodies still at, at that time. And so I think for 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 the most part, for the lifespan of animals, these these are are likely going to persist for um, many years, if not their whole life, um, especially in like a heavily hunted population where where the the age structure might be a little lower. Right. And can those are those antibodies? Can they be passed from a doe to her? To her fawns, mm-hmm. yeah, that's another good question, and and they are, and they are protective. Those antibodies typically, you know, last that that first fraction of milk um, in any mammal is called colostrum. It's very important, not only for hemorrhagic disease. This would be important for for really any pathogen that these neonatal animals might see in their um, in their first weeks and months of life. But this uh, this colostrum fraction is chock full of antibodies from the doe and they absorb through ingestion in the fawn and then those fawns will actually put them in their bloodstream and those will persist in those fawns for three to four months and so if you think about in many in many regions that's going to probably get many fawns through that first transmission season right and and so it's it's beneficial for that fawn if uh, mom had seen hemorrhagic disease either hd or and or blue tongue, you know, in her lifespan and, and can transfer those antibodies. Okay. That makes sense. And, and you kind of spoke to it there, get them, get them talking about getting the fawn through that, that kind of first season. Hemorrhagic disease seems to mainly be a, a summer issue. Why is that? Right. It's um, the, the reason it's, it's such a seasonal disease is because of its, uh, transmission mechanism through the culicoides midges. Um, and so the, the peak hemorrhagic disease season, typically we're approaching it. We're kind of, we're, we're, we're about to jump, jump right into it. it typically we start to, to get reports and get confirmations of, of activity in July, um, in August, in, in sort of peaks in that August, September timeframe. And then it really starts to fall down in October and then usually by November in most parts of the country, it's going to go away. And that's because of the, the temperatures and their connection with Culicoides populations. So it really all gets back to those pesky little insects, the Culicoides midges. And so when those populations sort of peak in their abundance is, is really that peak transmission time for deer um, in the late summer and early fall. And so, you know, the best thing that can that can happen during a severe hemorrhagic disease outbreak is a hard freeze, because what that hard freeze will do is come through and uh, knock down. It, it will basically kill adult helicoides. And, and then we can live to the next season after that. Um, while those while those helicoides, the helicoides are still there in nature, but they're overwintering in the mud or the tree cavities or wherever they, they choose to breed as larvae. Um, and so they'll, they'll live there all winter until they emerge, uh, that next spring. Okay. One thing I, I'm kind of jumping back here, but it just kind of mm-hmm. hit me as you were talking there, you know, you've mentioned, we've talked about hemorrhagic disease and blue tongue a, a couple times. And it, it got me thinking it is a, a deer that maybe has antibodies for hemorrhagic disease. Is it also protected from blue tongue or yeah. How similar are the two, I guess, and is one more prevalent than the other? And Very good question. Um, so short answer for um, the protection uh, is no. So if, a, if a, a yearling gets exposed this summer to EHDV and survives and has antibodies, and next season he sees a blue tongue virus, he'll be fully susceptible to that blue tongue virus. So the antibodies against EHD do not protect against blue tongue and vice versa. But I, there are some different, I mentioned earlier that there's some different varieties. We, we refer to them as serotypes um, of EHDV and of BTV. So for EHDV um, in the United States, we have three different serotypes of, of the virus, one, two, and six. For blue tongue, historically, there's been uh, five, but today we're, we're Around 16, 17 different serotypes have been detected um, in uh, in the United States, and that, a lot of that's changed here over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. 
but but within within a, a virus group, so EHDV, we know that there is some cross protection of those antibodies from EHDV one and EHDV two, for instance. So if that yearling buck was exposed to EHDV two this summer and survived infection, and then next season he was uh, exposed to serotype one, so EHDV one, he will probably still get infected. Um, but it would likely lessen the severity of disease or the occurrence of clinical signs, if that makes sense. So there's some there's some cross protection within a, a group, but not between the two groups. Okay, all right. And I I, I want to get back into those serotypes here in a minute, but kind of getting back mm-hmm. back to where we were a, a minute ago talking about as far as you know it being a summer issue, and then I guess what what drives these major outbreaks because i know you know over the last 10 15 years well i guess you know you you're, you took us all the way back to the 50s but just in my mind over the last 10 15 years you know we've seen some pretty significant ones in the midwest and you know parts of kentucky and, and different different parts of the country um these pretty severe outbreaks was you know significant uh numbers of of, of deer found dead what what drives that, those those major outbreaks like that? Yeah, you know, in 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 short, we don't we don't entirely know, um, but there is some evidence that there's some environmental variables that are likely pretty significant. And and usually with that, we're talking about temperature and precipitation. There's been some work that's been done um, to explore drought, severe drought as a risk factor for severe hemorrhagic disease outbreaks. Um, and, and there's, there's, there's certainly evidence that, that drought is a risk factor for severe outbreaks of hemorrhagic That doesn't mean that every time there's a drought, we're going to have a severe HD outbreak, but the conditions are such that they're favorable for uh, a severe hemorrhagic disease outbreak. And some of that work, it, it's interesting. I, I use that. It depends little cop out earlier. And uh, it applies here too with drought, you know. So, so within that work, we've seen some regional variation in how strong that relationship is between drought and severe hemorrhagic disease outbreak. And, and typically, as you he- head into more northern latitudes in the eastern United States, that relationship becomes a little bit more strong. Um, in terms of, of severe hemorrhagic disease outbreaks during drought. Um, and there's been our, our probably a couple of our best, most recent examples were um, 2007 and, and then in 2012, there was a couple of, of, of really um, significant hemorrhagic disease outbreaks in the United States. That 07 one kind of, kind of centered on sort of Tennessee, Kentucky, sort of had this southeastern pole to it. Um, and then the one in 2012, was really kind of anchored in the central Great Plains, sort of Nebraska, South Dakota. But th- both of those outbreaks spanned very large geographic areas, impacted thousands and thousands of deer, and uh, were really, really pretty memorable probably to any listeners who, who were in those areas during 07 or 12, probably, you know, and were out, out and about probably have a memory of those. Do you, do you know what it is about a drought? about a drought that that may increase the odds of a, a, a severe outbreak like that? I mean, is it, is it have to do with how the, the drought impacts the, the midges mm-hmm. life cycle or something? Yeah. So, you know, these it's it's um, it's interesting because, you know, these culicoides midges, they need to lay their eggs in some moisture. You know, they're, they're not they're not like a mosquito. They don't lay their eggs in standing water. They lay it on saturated, moist uh, substrate. So like soup, like, you know, mud or well-saturated tree cavity litter. And so, you know, as there's, there's, there's sort of multiple theories here on, on, on vector populations. But, you know, as, as water resources sort of contract on the landscape um, during a drought, that affects where, where and when animals are about. And so, so those, those sort of factors might increase, increase, uh, availability to culicoides midges that are seeking, you know, a a host or a blood meal. The other important factor is 
the temperature. Typically during droughts, we're talking about high temperatures as well as, as low precipitation. And, and at higher temperatures, everything with, with Culicoides midges happens faster, right? So they develop their eggs faster. They lay their eggs faster. Their eggs hatch, develop through larvae, and develop through adulthood faster. So if you think about it in those terms, all those times within the Culicoides midge life cycle contract, but also the virus replication within that midge is temperature dependent. So at these higher temperatures, the virus replicates more rapidly into a higher concentration in the culicoides. And so effectively, if you think about this, what this, what this could be doing is increasing sort of the number of generations that are occurring and, and increasing the amount of virus in those animals on the, popul- uh, on the landscape. And so things can just sort of, you know, cascade out of control in terms of, you know, the, the number of culicoides midges on the landscape that are infected and biting deer. And uh, the, these midges can attack. They're, they're very tenacious. They will, Mother Nature throws, throws numbers at the game here. So they come in in, in great numbers and can attack sort of deer or whatever their preferred host is in, in very large numbers. And anytime you have, you sort of, you play this numbers game of more and more and more, you're just increasing the chances that, that one or more of those insects is going to be in, infected and able to transmit the virus. Does, I don't know if this is the right terminology or not, but I guess does does like viral load impact mm-hmm. the severity of the disease on the deer? Like if they get bit, bitten by, you know, numerous or more than one, of these midges that that have the the virus in them does that does that increase the severity i guess yeah we 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 don't entirely know but i had to guess i would say it does we do know you know from from experiments that you really don't need much virus or very many culicoides to actually infect a white-tailed deer and so they're they're quite it's, it's a quite an efficient system uh, from, from from what we know and and likely um the the more virus they're challenged with i suspect the more significant potentially that outcome can be but if you also think about you know that, that it's it's not it gets more complicated than that too um and we often sort of overlook you know stress but if you think about how terrible it would be to live live outside in august during a severe drought, you know, it's 90 degrees in the shade and there's swarming insects, there's not good forage and, and you're just, you'd just be kind of a wreck. I don't know if humans are even capable of this anymore. We probably want to. <laughs> probably yeah, not. I think they're a lot tougher than us. But it's, it, that, that certainly, that, that's a hard question to explore scientifically, but I suspect that those, those just, um, pretty oppressive environmental life conditions during these severe outbreaks probably also, you know, has the potential to impact a deer's ability to cope, right? A, 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 to survive through a, a disease challenge, you know, because most, a lot of, with a lot of diseases, you know, if, if, if an animal has space and time and nutrition and rest, you know, there's things that they can work through, but sometimes that just gets to be too much. Yeah. Well, I, I guess from a management perspective, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are landowners or land managers. Is there anything that we can do to, I guess, prevent or minimize the impact of hemorrhagic disease in, uh, in wild deer on, on our properties? As far as, you know, preventing or, or mitigating, unfortunately, you know, I, I don't think that there is any practical, practical means there you know, to, to, to do anything about it. I mean, this is definitely, we live with many diseases. Hemorrhagic disease is definitely a disease that we have and will be continuing to, to live with, no doubt. Yeah. And I, I guess kind of on that note, uh, mm-hmm. inevitably when, when we share any, we share a lot of information at the NDA, of course, on, on chronic wasting disease. Oh, sure. And inevitably when we do, you know, someone comments about hemorrhagic disease and how it's, much worse and you know we should be more focused on that 
CWD. What, what's your uh, what's your thoughts on that, or how how would you respond to that kind of yeah that kind of comment? Yeah, I I I I get questions like this quite a bit, and I do I do also hear confusion at times between you know CWD and HD, all these acronyms that we always use, of course, confuse people. But you know these diseases are are quite different. I know that the, the thing about hemorrhagic disease is it slaps you in your face, right? You can go from zero to 60 real quick, meaning everything's fine. And then you go outside, you know, and over a period of days, there's dozens upon dozens of dead, you know, animals rotting and it smells like decomposition on your land, right? So it's very in your face. It's very abrupt and sometimes very dramatic, you know, on those big, those big outbreak years, literally you can follow, you know, the smell of death and vultures carcasses. There's so many carcasses on the landscape. And so that's hard to ignore. And it's, it's, it's highly visible. It's concerning. But the fact of the matter is, is typically there's going to be some reprieve. We, we know at the very least there's going to be a, an entire year before the next transmission season. But this disease is one that moves on the landscape. It's not static. It ebbs and flows, cyclical, and, and, and those, those severe outbreaks are typically periodic, right? It's typically not going to come back and, and hammer the same spot every year. And chronic wasting disease is kind of the opposite of all of that, right? It's very cryptically operating on the landscape. It doesn't have this wow effect of I'm walking through my pasture and I just found 12 dead dead deer. You're just not going to see that with 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 chronic wasting disease. That doesn't mean that chronic wasting disease isn't as or more, to be honest, significant than than hemorrhagic disease. You know, we also have this this sort of benefit of um, of history here with hemorrhagic disease in that. You know, we had, we've had, you know, if you think of the, where, where I started with my little squidus origin story, um, you know, in the fifties where, you know, cyclical outbreaks were feared to complicate the recovery of white-tailed deer. Well, if we fast forward to 2022, white-tailed deer are doing pretty good, you know, in the Eastern United States in the face of repeated and in, in increasingly severe hemorrhagic disease outbreak. That's not to say it, it can't be pushed. You know, uh, that, you know, that, that sort of pendulum can always swing and, and we could, we could begin to see some effects, but my suspicion would be that it would be, you know, quite local, uh, localized severe effects that usually populations are going to be rebounding from, you know, there's, there's scary evidence from chronic wasting disease where, where you you are, you're impacting a, a population's long-term viability with this even though the death is a little bit harder to see and, and sometimes almost invisible. And so it's more cryptic in nature, but it's, it's there and it never stops and it's relentless. Um, and so there's those sort of two, two different branches of, of CWD and, and hemorrhagic disease where they're, they're sort of on these, these, these different sort of trajectories, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Un- unfortunately, a good hard frost on in your, uh, your CWD. <laughs> I, I, I wish it did, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there's kind of this fatigue from CWD that, that, that a lot of, you know, us, and I think probably a lot of hunters and wildlife enthusiasts, you know, do too. It's, it's fatiguing because it, it never goes away. You know, we have this gift with hemorrhagic disease that, you know, we really kind of got to focus on it for these three or four months and then it, and then it leaves us for a while. And, and then, you know, we've, we've got a good, you know, six, seven, eight months where it's not really profoundly on the radar screen. And uh, we just don't have that benefit with CWD. Well, getting back to just hemorrhagic disease, I guess, what should uh, someone do who stumbles on a deer out in the woods that that you suspect is uh, maybe suffering from from EHD or blue tongue, um, Mm -hmm. or maybe you've stumbled on a a dead deer on your property that, that you suspect that maybe from from hemorrhagic disease is there any any steps you need to take from there yeah well that that information is is always really really good to have um and and we at, at here at, at squidus we've been in the early 1980s we we started a pretty simple questionnaire um that goes out to, to all the deer program coordinators in in all of the states and and we 
they, they report out their suspected and confirmed hemorrhagic disease outbreak. And that information has been, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, collated by all the deer biologists and state wildlife management agencies in the country. And no doubt has been supported by, you know, members of the public in those states who have reported deer mortality. And so the, the benefits from that information, you know, from a scientific perspective and management perspective have, are really good. And, and we use that data often in, in working with our state partners. And so my, my absolute suggestion would be to work closely with their state wildlife management agency and uh, the regional biologists and, and report any, you know, that those, those sick deer uh, or dead deer mortality events to, to the agency. Not to say everybody needs to uh, report every you know roadkill deer we see on the on the the drive home tonight, but this would be more you know sick deer or suspicious, especially with regarding specifically hemorrhagic disease. It's often sort of clusters of deer. Um, so it, may, it can be a singleton deer, um, but but oftentimes it's it's groups of deer. So those are those are definite events that you'd want to kind of inform your your agency about, even even if you were doing some some scouting before hunting season, walking through the property and you found three to four to five carcasses and their, their bones at that point, but they're still, that, that's, that's still of interest regarding, you know, clustered mortality on the landscape during, during that, that, that fall and summer. And then sick deer too, you know, not every deer that dies, dies of hemorrhagic disease. We know that. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of ailments that can affect uh, deer species. And so reporting those to state wildlife agency so they can be investigated and uh, a cause determined if possible is always a benefit. Yeah. And, and you alluded to this earlier, but there's actually a, a way that you can tell, you know, if a, if a deer, maybe you killed in the fall, uh, had previously had hemorrhagic disease, isn't there? There, there is. So, so one of the, one of the sort of the characteristic uh, signs that we'll, we'll look for, for evidence of an outbreak are what we call fever lines. So this, these are, these are um, on the hoof wall. Um, so that the hoof wall on a deer, it kind of grows out, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the band of fur around the top, and then it grows out towards the tip of the hoof, kind of like our fingernail would grow. And so you can get on each claw of the hoof a, a line. You'll basically get this interruption in the growth of that hoof wall. And that usually coincides with a fever. So when a deer is infected and develops a fever and has that sort of systemic response to that infection, it'll, you can get that disruption in that hoof wall. And we know that that grows at a, at a, at a fairly consistent rate each month. And so you can kind of do some back calculations to place that in time, you know, during that, that sort of late, late summer, early fall period where hemorrhagic disease activity would have been peaking. And sometimes that, those little lines, Sometimes they're intact. So like the integrity of like, you know, that, that hoof wall is intact. Sometimes though, it will crack right there. And, and sometimes it can crack quite severely all the way around to the point where those deer will actually slough that hoof wall. Now those deer might not make it to hunting season potentially um, because that, that's a very painful injury. But I kind of alluded earlier to that chronic form of, of hemorrhagic disease. Sometimes if those cracks become severe, bacteria can can jump down into that crack and set up um, sort of an opportunistic infection, which then just further aggravates the problem, right? Because it, it, it's even more painful once an infection sets in. And so sometimes those little, those little fever lines or, or cracks can become pretty problematic to deer. Is any issue with, with eating a deer that, that, you know, previously may have had EHD, you see those, you know, cracked hooves or, or mm-hmm. what have you? Um, I think the, the guidance, you know, for, you know, is, is always if, if a deer is showing evidence of a se- severe infection, you know, or disease that if there's a bacterial infection setting up in old oral ulcers and, and on the feet, those are situations where you could have, you know, bacteria entering the bloodstream and then seeding tissues and including, including muscle. And you'd want to avoid you know, consuming those animals. But as far as, as far as consuming animals that have been previously exposed to EHD or blue tongue, and in some places actively, I think, you know, many of us have consumed those animals, you know, regularly, because these are viruses that these deer, um, you know, live with in nature. 
and so uh so yeah short short of short of having those um animals in in the acute acute phase which is usually a little bit before hunting season in most regions yeah i think the the biggest thing to look out for would be secondary infection okay and kind of i guess as we kind of start to wrap things up here are, are we seeing an increase in uh i guess just in the prevalence of, of ehd of, of major outbreaks that kind of stuff or is this just something that seems to be kind of holding steady over the the last you know 60 something years no we've had we've had some very sort of concerning um concerning signs and, that, and that's kind of why i gave that that caveat when we were talking about you know cwd versus hemorrhagic disease and impacts of of like you know we kind of don't know what the future holds a little bit and that's because with hemorrhagic disease there has been a, a pretty dramatic shift and change over probably the last 15 to 20 years where there's a lot of evidence of this northern northern expansion of hemorrhagic disease in the eastern united states um but but also an increase in and sort of the frequency and intensity of those outbreaks. So meaning, you know, that in some of these more northern areas, say the upper Midwest or the Northeast, where historically HD was rare, it's becoming quite common. For example, you know, you, you could have, you could have, you know, a, a biologist with a, a 25 year career, you know, in the seventies to, you know, to 2000, and they might have seen one outbreak. Of, of hemorrhagic or, or maybe two at best. And these days, in the last 20 years, that's shifted to be becoming, you know, that same biologist would have seen multiple outbreaks during that time. And so, especially in the northern tier of, of sort of, st- of states, let's say, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, you know, even, even getting, you know, a little bit more farther south, you know, here in, in Ohio. West Virginia, we've had a lot of activity in the last 15 years, and and some of these outbreaks have been, you know, pretty severe. And so, it, it's definitely a, a mortality factor if if you kind of if you kind of compare decades to decades, you know, or quarter century to quarter century. What's a pretty regular mortality factor today, it, it, at least regularly on the radar screen in in the state agencies, in that previous quarter century it really wasn't it was that that this was that disease that happened in the south not necessarily something that that had to be worried about um in the upper midwest and northeast but these days um it's it's definitely shifted and and we we regularly isolate viruses from deer that have died in the upper midwest and northeast and northern great plains quite regularly today do we know what what's driving that northern expansion we we don't entirely, but certainly a suspicion is a changing climate. You know, if, if you think about this disease in terms of not only deer, but you think about it in terms of insects and the Culicoides biting midges, and we know how closely connected those Culicoides midge populations, any vector population, has this relationship with temperature and precipitation and, and these sort of habitat variables. That's really important, and so. As we go through, you know, a, a climate change, that really kind of changes the game. It changes seasons a, a bit and temperatures and, and precipitation and interaction with habitat. There's a lot of complex variables at, at play there that, to be honest, we don't fully understand yet. But certainly it's a, an, an area of, of research interest to sort of better understand what, what we might, you know, be looking at and then also looking forward what it what it might lead to in, in terms of frequency of occurrence on the landscape and, and how often these deer populations are going to be, be dealing with this, but also how they're dealing with it and, you know, how, how those populations cope with it. And if immunity develops, there's a lot of questions there that, that over time we'll, we'll try to answer. And how do these different, I guess, serotypes that you, you mentioned earlier, how do, how do they play into that? Are they, are, are we seeing new ones of those develop and yeah. that impact? And um, yeah, we, we, and there's a lot, there's a lot of questions there too, and that we, that we don't fully know the answer to, but I, I, I often lean on this changing landscape of, of viruses just as, as more evidence of change. There's just so much that's changed in the last 15 to 20 years. And so 
you know, one, once upon a time, we had two serotypes of, of EHD virus and five types of, of blue tongue virus. Now we have three types of EHD virus and, you know, 16 or more serotypes of blue tongue virus. Those viruses most likely have come from, from southern latitudes. There's, you know, if you go closer to the equator in this hemisphere, the diversity, the number of different types of viruses dwells, right? And so it's, it's just further evidence that, you know, there's been changes on the landscape that have allowed the movement, you know, an introduction and establishment of some of these new viruses that, that haven't historically been here. They've been in more southern latitudes. So it's just that further evidence of change on the landscape that not only is through increase in number of viruses on the landscape, but also sort of frequency of outbreaks, intensity of outbreaks. We don't entirely know what the impact of some of these individual new viruses may be. But anytime you have a new virus, you know, that's got new genetics, it has it has new proteins on its surface that that might, you know, be be novel compared to what our, our populations of deer have historically encountered. And so th- those are opportunities for, you know, a new virus to sort of evade the immune system perhaps a little bit more or to have a more severe impact. And those are the kind of things that we need to try to better understand of if those are occurring with some of these novel viruses that, that come in. EHD and blue tongue, in, at least in the eastern United States, for the most part, Epizootic hemorrhagic disease virus is by far and away more common than blue tongue virus. We rarely, uh, rarely, but less frequently detect blue tongue virus as the cause of, of hemorrhagic disease outbreaks in the eastern United States. But as you head west in, into the Great Plains and Mountain West, you, you begin in, or into the deep south, that's where blue tongue virus is, is a little bit more common. And most of our outbreaks of, of of hemorrhagic disease in the United States are at the hand of episodic hemorrhagic disease. And in, and in recent years, since the discovery of a new serotype of, of, of episodic hemorrhagic disease, uh, and that's EHDV6, um, that virus has be, sort of become an increasingly more important player on the, in the hemorrhagic disease world. Historically, EHDV serotype 2 has been by far and away the most common virus affecting deer in the eastern United States. Uh, but EHDV6, especially at some of these more northern areas in the upper Midwest and in Northeast, is becoming pretty pretty frequent cause of, of hemorrhagic disease. Okay. And are they, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, are they serotypes? So they're, mm-hmm. not, they're not necessarily where the, the virus is, is mutating. This is just, they just existed and they're, they're moving yep. northward. Yeah, so so these these serotypes are basically just you know different varieties, and and so their their genetic makeup is going to be different enough to you know we, we've all we've all had this education of COVID the last few years. Yeah, yeah. We we all actually kind of know what a a virus particle looks like these days, but all the spiky things on the outer surface of that virus um, are the things that sort of you know the body. Um, develops antibodies against, for instance. And so, you know, when those are significantly different enough, it's going to sort of create this, this sort of different recognition. And so we, we kind of designate these as, as, as different serotypes um, based on that sort of antibody production profile. But that's also reciprocated by like a, a genetic makeup. So if we were to sequence the genetics of these, these viruses, it's, it's quite easy to tell which one is HDB2 versus HDB6. And yeah, that, that's, um, it does become, it does become important when trying to, to understand, you know, what, what's occurring on the landscape and what the potential sort of implications are for the detection of some of these new, new viruses. HDV6, for instance, was first detected in, in 2006 in Indiana and Illinois. And so it really hasn't been on our landscape for that long. And it really kind of, it just kind of smoldered. We had a, a, a little, a, a few detections here and there for, for a couple of years and it just kind of smoldered there. And then it popped, you know, down, down the road to become a more frequent virus that we detect. And it's th- these, these viruses are, are, are pretty wild. The, the virus, this virus, HDV6, it's actually a reassortant virus. So, it, you know, it's a, it's it swapped some genes with 
some of our, you know, native EHD viruses, EHDV2, to sort of create this sort of inner core that's EHDV2, but its outer shell is EHDV6 genetics and, and proteins. And so those are the kind of, of wild things that viruses can do to sort of make it so that they can establish or transmit more efficiently or, you know, infect a, a new host. There's, there's a lot of mechanisms that viruses will utilize to make life better for them. Um, and so I can only imagine that that's maybe for whatever reason that that virus that sort of reassorted and shuffled some, some genes around with our native viruses, you know, potentially made it more fit to persist and, and, and establish here in the United States in our, in our system of deer and, and different Culicoides species than, than maybe it would have seen in, in other parts of the world where it was previously. Hmm. Yeah, that's, man, yeah, that's interesting. And, and a little scary too, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, viruses typically are scary. Yeah. Oh, but, and you said that th- there is some resistance there, or I guess some antibody uh, crossover as far as, you know, the, the EHD mm-hmm. uh, two virus, if a, if a deer has been exposed to EHD, you know, two V2, mm-hmm. then would they have some resistance from the, the, the V6 as well? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and it's it's a it's a question we have, and it's a research question that we want to answer. To be honest, you know, because we we kind of can't make that assumption, but um, I I think based on what we know, I, I would I would assume that you know EHDV two previous exposure in a deer would would afford that animal some protection against EHDV six, but we're just not sure until we do that study, and it's it's kind of become increasingly important for us to do that study. I feel because HDV6 is becoming increasingly common in the upper Midwest and and Northeast and in parts of the country. And so HDV6 is actually far more commonly detected than than HDV serotype 1, which is kind of like the original, the prototype prototype, uh, serotype of of HDV. Um, HDV6 is a lot more commonly uh, detected as cause of outbreaks in the United States. So, so there's good reason to sort of do some of those studies, but, you know, based on what we know about the other serotypes, I would, I would hope that there is some cross protection. Okay. And I guess for anybody that, you know, wants to keep up with this kind of stuff, you guys put out a, um, like an e-newsletter, don't you? That, that has a lot of this stuff in it a lot of what you guys are researching and and stuff. Yeah, we, we typically, um, we have a a newsletter, it's called the Squidest Brief that we, we put out quarterly, but. Typically every um, uh, January or April, it's actually best in April because it's, it's after we've got the full, the full season in. But um, in one of those issues every year, we will put a, an update in there on the hemorrhagic disease activity that we detected that year. And so it certainly doesn't capture the entire United States, um, but we have a, a, a pretty big, big footprint throughout a, a lot of the eastern United States where we support many agencies with diagnostic testing when they you know, get a, a member of the public that reports a sick or dead deer and they collect a sample, ship it to us, and we'll do diagnostic testing, report back to the state um, agencies so that they have that information. And so we kind of coalesce that, that we do regionally um, and, and put it in there. Um, and that would be accessible to anybody. Okay. I'll be sure to, I'll put a link in our, our show notes if they want to subscribe. That's something anybody can subscribe to, correct? Or else? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll include that. And uh, yeah, with that, Mark, I, I've had you over here. I had you on here for for well over an hour. So I'll, uh, you know, I'll let you go. But I do thank you uh, so much for taking time out to talk with us today. Um, I, I know this is uh, for for a lot of hunters. This isn't maybe the the most exciting thing to hear about as far as you know hunting strategy or that kind of stuff. But it's it's important to be aware and, and educated on these types of topics. And, you know, you know, you know what you're looking for, you know, what's going on out there uh, as you're out there enjoying time in the outdoors. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Mark Reuter. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the deer season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere 
you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts. You should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends. <laughs>